Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Leif Enger at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. Chart-topping novelist Leif Enger burst onto the literary scene in 2001 with Peace Like a River, one of the century's few fiction debuts to sell a million copies. Set in northern Minnesota in the 1960s, audiences fell in love with Peace Like a River's Arcadian small-town setting and 12-year-old protagonist Reuben Rube Land a young narrator every bit as memorable as Huck Finn or Scout Finch. Anger's follow-ups to date include So Brave, Young, and Handsome, a classic Western with a Minnesota spin. Along with older brother Lynn, and under the Apropos pen name L.L. Anger, he also penned an Edgar Award-nominated mystery series about a retired baseball all-star in his less-than-restful retirement in the Northwoods. Anger's newest, Virgil Wander, centers on a small industrial town past its prime, and the band of residents who love it fiercely. The Wall Street Journal raved, Virgil Wander brings out the charm and downright strangeness of the defiantly normal. Since its publication in October 2018, this newest addition to the Anger Corpus has garnered a host of honors, including being named a number one indie next list pick. Thanks so much. Thanks for that great introduction. And, uh, and thanks so much to uh, Club Book and to the library system for having me. It's really a treat. Um, There's so many good, good books that get published every year, uh, really good ones, that uh, to, to have one that actually gets me invited to something like this um, <laughs> makes me feel incredibly lucky and fortunate and, uh, and grateful. So. Um, I think what I'll do is, is just start out by reading a little bit from the book itself, uh, and, then, uh, and then I'll probably make a few remarks about, about reading and, uh, hi, and writing, which are still, after all these years, I think the, the best tools we have, right? The best tools we have. I love how libraries keep expanding beyond their, their original mandate and do all sorts of things we couldn't have imagined 30 or 40 years ago. And yet, when it all comes down to it, it's still about reading and writing. Uh, 
What would we do without them? I'm going to just read from the beginning of Virgil Wander, the best place to start. Now I think the picture was unspooling all along and I just failed to notice. The obvious really isn't so, at least it wasn't to me. A Midwestern male cruising at medium altitude, aspiring vaguely to decency, contributing to PBS, moderate in all things, including romantic forays, and doing unto others more or less reciprocally. If I were to pinpoint when the world began reorganizing itself, that is, when my seeing of it began to shift, it would be the day a stranger named Rune blew into our bad luck town of Greenstone, Minnesota, like a spark from the boreal gloom. It was also the day of my release from St. Luke's Hospital down in Duluth, so I was concussed and more than a little adrift. The previous week, I had driven up shore to a popular lookout to photograph a distant storm approaching over Lake Superior. It was a beautiful storm, self-contained as storms often are, hunched far out over the vast water like a blob of blue ink. But it stalled in the middle distance, and time just slipped away. There's a picnic table up there where I have napped more than once. What woke me this time was the mischievous gale delivering autumn's first snow. I leaped behind the wheel as it came down in armloads. Highway 61 quickly grew rutted and slick. Maybe I was driving too fast. You too was on the radio, mysterious ways I seem to recall. Apparently my heartbroken Pontiac breached a safety barrier and made a long, lovely, some might say cinematic arc into the churning lake. I say apparently since this particular memory is not crisp. The airbag deployed at the barricade, snapped my head back and swaddled me in a whiplash haze that took a long time to shake off. I missed the lightning thoughts and impressions a person might expect in this situation. Cold panic, clinching denial, a magician's bouquet of vibrant regrets. I'd have sunk with the car if Marcus Jetty hadn't been doing a little late season beachcombing. Marcus runs Greenstone Salvage and Tinker, a famous local eyesore of bike frames, tube amps, hula poppers, oil drums, and knobs of driftwood. He was picking along the jagged strand in his raincoat, eye on a fat cork from somebody's herring net, when a car approached on the highway above. He later described the sounds of a whining V6 and thumping bass line before the barrier burst to shrapnel and the world for a moment silenced itself. In the silence, Marcus looked up. A mid-sized American sedan sailed dreamlike through thickening snow. I forgot to thank Marcus when he came to visit during my recovery. Actually, I didn't recognize him. That happened a lot at first. He was reserved and shook my hand as though we were meeting for the first time. Salvage man, he kindly explained. Eventually, I asked him if he ever expected to salvage a middle-aged bachelor and film projectionist. Nope, no, he replied. The market for such specimens was in decline. <laughs> Marcus is one of those weathered old reticent types whose rare comment tends to be on point. The neurologist was a Finn named Koskinen, with a broad, decent face and a Teddy Roosevelt mustache. He diagnosed mild traumatic brain injury. This sounded paradoxical, but so did everything else, he said. For example, the damage was short-term, but might last quite a while, or possibly longer than that. I could expect within months to regain my balance, as long as I didn't tip over. To experience fewer headaches, or maybe just get used to them. 
He said over time I would remember the names of friends and the nearer relatives, that I would recover fine motor skills and pockets of personal history I didn't yet realize had vanished. Despite my confusion, I liked Koskinen immediately. He had the heartening bulk of the aging athlete defeated by pastry. <laughs> he delivered all news as though it were good. Most welcome was his prediction that language would gradually return. Not that I couldn't speak, but I had to stick to basics. My storehouse of English had been pillaged. At first I thought common nouns were the hardest hit, coffee and doorway and so on, but it soon became clear that the missing were mostly adjectives. Don't worry, everything will come back, said Dr. Koskinen. Most things probably will. A good many of them might return. <laughs> there will be at least a provisional rebound. How does this make you feel? I wanted to say relieved or encouraged or at least hopeful, but none of these were available. All I could muster was a mute grin at which the doctor nodded with his mouth open in a vaguely alarming smile. He was correct about the language, though. Within weeks, certain prodigal words started filtering home. They came one at a time or in shy, small groups. I remember when Sea Kindly showed up, a sentimental favorite, followed by desiccated and massive. Brusque appeared all by itself, which seemed apt. Mary and Boisterous arrived together. This would be a good time to ask your patients if I use an adjective too many now and again. Even now, some years on, they are still returning. I'm just so glad to see them. Upon my release, I wasn't allowed to drive right away. Even if I could, my car was sitting on its roof under 90 feet of water. So Tom Beeman delivered me home. Beeman is my oldest friend a massive, garrulous North Dakotan of Samoan ancestry. That I remembered him immediately was a relief to us both. He owns and edits the local weekly. He drives a minuscule Geo Metro. He claims to like the mileage, but what he really likes is to pull over and flabbergast onlookers just by climbing out. <laughs> so little car and so much beaming emerging from it. The Geo has ruinous shocks, so we went bounding up historic Highway 61 while he brought me up to speed. Genghis, the raccoon Beeman had rescued when its mother was killed in the road, had run off again. He was openly relieved. Nothing is sweeter than a baby raccoon or more wrathful than the baby grown. Beeman said he had written a short article about my close call and had been inundated with people asking after my welfare. Apparently I was popular. Avoiding my eyes, he said a rumor had started that I didn't make it, that I died in the lake. So he drove out to where it happened. And sure enough, someone had hung a twist of flowers on the torn fence, carnations and baby's breath. There was a white plastic cross and a laminated photo saying, Virgil Wander, rest in peace. While he poked around, a little scorched-haired lady arrived in a Chevy pickup and marched to the brink with a rosary. When Tom revealed I was alive, she wrapped it around her fist in annoyance and sped off, dragging a veil of smoke. <laughs> I listened to Tom the best I could. He has a naturally comforting voice. But a bad concussion jangles everything. My mind was not clear. His gentle baritone came at me like elbows. The geo's elliptical progress, plus the acute brightness of the world, made me queasy. We developed a hand signal so Tom could pull over and allow me to puke. Resting on a swale of grass overlooking the lake, sweat cooling on my brow, 
I thought I saw a man out there, not in a boat, just a man standing upright on the shimmery surface of Lake Superior. The lake was so calm it looked concave. The man stood at ease a hundred yards out. He turned his head to look at me. I seemed to shrink or the world to expand. Do you see that? I asked Beeman, who kept a civil distance. I pointed at the man on the lake. Beeman shrugged. See what? I didn't elaborate. The man smiled. He was way out there, but I could see him smiling right at me. He had a black suit on. He looked like a keyhole or exclamation point standing on the water. Beeman took me home and carried a paper sack up the 17 steps to my rooms above the Empress Theater. The sack contained my clothes from the accident, laundered and wadded back up, a toothbrush and razor, and two pairs of throwaway hospital slippers with square toes. Beeman had also fetched my mail from the post office and run into the sitgo for bread and a half gallon of 2% milk. It was his doing I could get into the apartment at all. My only key was in the Pontiac down in the glimmery murk. During my stay at St. Luke's, Tom had hired a locksmith to change out the assembly. I stood blinking in front of the flashy new knob until he handed me the key. I have lived at the Empress a long time. First because of a dire romantic impulse, and second because in seven years of trying, I haven't been able to sell it. <laughs> Nevertheless, you put your stamp on a home. It's nicer than you would expect. I had, I had the bachelor's discreet pride in my maple floors and built-in cabinets. My big sister Ori comes from Colorado once or twice a year and always brings some vintage item that suits the place. The bird clock, an art deco mirror, the bake-like wall sconce. Ori walks the tightrope between irony and genuine zeal. She's fond of seafoam green. For more than 20 years, I had felt at home in my home. Now I stood weirdly slack in the middle of my kitchen. Everything was off. The fall of light from the wall fixture, the press board ceiling tiles mimicking ornamental tin, my skin prickled. What might seem to you only the webby neglect of a week's absence felt to me ominous and elemental. The scene felt staged for my benefit, down to the smallest details. A dead ladybug legs up on the counter, fingerprint whirls on the chrome toaster. The evidence of my life lay before me, and I was unconvinced. After Beeman left, I walked through the rooms, turned the TV on and off, flicked through shirts in the closet. The unease would not dissipate. I went through my mail. In the most recent issue of The Observer was Beeman's short article about my accident. I started it four or five times, but couldn't stay interested. There was coverage of last week's city council meeting, a fluff piece on a local retiree whose antique wrench collection filled two boxcars, and a disturbing paragraph in the police blotter about a young woman found dead of exposure in the woods a few miles north of town. I cracked open some windows. Even the views were askew. They had an inert, stereoscopic quality, empress in vertical blue neon out front with Main Street below and the water tower two blocks inland, out back the pea gravel roof of the auditorium and past it the moody old sea. I might have been clicking through with a viewmaster. I couldn't nail down what had changed in the apartment. To begin with, it seemed to belong to somebody else. This made a kind of sense. My perceptions had shifted just as Dr. Koskinen had said. Still, I hadn't expected my hanging shirts to seem like somebody else's shirts. 
or my framed map of the Spanish Virgin Islands to seem like somebody else's daydream. The candle I light every week for my parents was reduced to a meaningless blue pillar. I wandered into my bedroom and lay down. I had made it to late afternoon. The doctor had said I should sleep as much as possible and try not to think too hard. But as my bones settled on the mattress, a notion crept in. A short sentence appeared in my mind implying I could go ahead and wear those shirts. I could paint the walls, sell the furniture, throw out the candle. I could do whatever I liked with a building for one simple reason. The previous tenant was dead. Poor Virgil didn't actually make it. I popped off the mattress and pulled on shoes. They didn't seem like my shoes, exactly. They resisted my hands and feet. I pulled them on anyway and got away from there. So Virgil's... That's, that's, I, maybe I should have set that up before I started reading. <laughs> Virgil runs a little movie theater on, uh, on the north shore of Lake Superior called, called The Empress in Greenstone, Minnesota, which is a dying town. I had so much fun writing about it. Uh, I, I didn't think very much about writing fiction until I was 16 and not very much then. Uh, at 16, I had the, the luxury of not having to be serious. Um, maybe some kids still have that luxury. It doesn't seem like it, but maybe they do. I hope they do. I've been trying to recapture the, the kind of thoughts that I had when I was 16 and started to think about writing. It's like waving a butterfly net. I, I know that chiefly I thought about girls. Um, apart from that, I thought about sailing, which I was learning to do on a, a waterlogged old scow that my brother had, had bought many years earlier. I thought about kite flying, which is a lot like sailing, um, only easier to arrange at short notice. And, uh, and I thought about trumpet playing. I was, I was kind of a trumpet nerd. Uh, my dad was the band director in Osakis, and, uh, and, and I, I was a trumpet player. And I was more enthusiastic than I was good. Uh, most of the record albums I owned were uh, by a guy named Maynard Ferguson, who was a jazz player. I love Maynard. He could, he could hit those high notes, man. But once in a while, I did think about writing uh, for two reasons. First was that I had a brother, Lynn, five years older than me, who was in college at Moorhead State University, and he had begun writing short stories, uh, which was a revelation to me. I didn't know before that that living people wrote books or short stories. <laughs> it seemed like the, the area of the dead, kind of. But Lynn would write short stories, bring them home, and let me read them, which was a very big deal to me. If somebody else in your family is already writing, then it's kind of like that shirt's in your closet already. And you, feel, you, can, you can take it out and try it on. Uh, the other reason was that I, I had a teacher uh, who liked my essays, and she encouraged me to write. So that was, uh, that was a big deal to me, too. A couple encouragements early on. Uh, my favorite writers at that time were C.S. Lewis, because of the Narnia stories, Kenneth Graham, because of Wind in the Willows, and Ursula Le Guin uh, for the Earthsea stories. The guy that introduced me to the Earthsea stories was, was Phil Helgen, who lives nearby and who's right here, my, my best friend. Um, think about what all those tales have in common. They, they create a world that is familiar in, in some ways, but is totally other than your world. 
And then you can pick up the book and you have total license to just vanish into this other world as often as you want to and stay as long as you want. Uh, I, I just feel better saying that. Uh, it, it was just, it was such medicine to me when I was a, a young reader to think of a place where you might be walking through the woods and, and you meet an enormous bear and then suddenly it rises up on its hind legs and speaks to you in English. Um, or where you're suddenly quick-witted enough to turn the tables on your oppressors. Or even just be taken seriously, even though you're a kid. That's, that's magic enough when you're 12 or 13 years old. So when I did think about writing, I thought it might be an okay thing to pursue as long as I could do it like C.S. Lewis did it, where uh, two kids might be standing looking at a picture of a ship on a wall, a ship in green water, and all of a sudden the, the, the painting gets bigger and bigger and they're standing on the frame and then they lose their balance and they fall down into the green water and the ship is looming over them and lowering a boat to pick them up. Uh, that still has all kinds of power for me. That kind of writing appealed to me, I think, largely because it had nothing to do with my actual life. Um, it was totally foreign. And just to be clear, I, I wasn't out really to escape my life. I liked my life. I, I had a great family and I had good friends. I didn't have a massive chip on my shoulder. I wasn't one of those kids that you see in movies who feel ill-used because they were born too far from the bright lights. Nothing like that. Um, and yet, for years, I specifically avoided writing anything that resembled the reality of where I lived or the people I knew. I didn't want to portray any characters like the teachers and pastors and um, you know, school janitors and people that I knew growing, I just didn't want to write about them. For a long time, I wondered why that would be. Everybody says, write what you know. It's the oldest advice in the universe. Write what you know. But everything I knew was exactly what I didn't want to write about. Maybe I was afraid of being pedestrian or small or parochial or something. Um, even now, I can't tell you exactly why, but I can tell you when it changed. And what made it change, in the middle 80s, I got really, really lucky and landed a job uh, reporting the news for Minnesota Public Radio up in the northern part of the state. I didn't have any specialty or expertise. I barely knew what I was doing. I was just out of college. So I was a general assignment guy. And that meant getting tossed into the deep end. Um, and interviewing people about their jobs and, and their problems and their, their issues and their ambitions, their kids, whatever. And I really liked doing it. I liked the people I was working for, I liked my editors, and I liked the people I was interviewing every day. And something started to sink in. I didn't know yet what it was, but it was sinking in. You know how neuroscientists have now kind of figured out that even though we are considered to be adults at 18, uh, our brains are not fully developed until we hit about 25. Uh, I didn't know that then. So you can buy a car and some booze and an AR-15. Um, you, can, you can get married or, or uh, 
do all these adult things before your prefrontal cortex has actually arrived. <laughs> it's pretty far behind you, and you can do all these things. It's terrifying. But at about the same time that I finally got an adult brain, I was also handed a microphone. So, um, so I started talking to city council people and teachers and cons and ex-cons, uh, treaty rights activists, union plumbers, Christmas shoppers, strike breakers, leech trappers, homeschoolers. And slowly this reality started to sink in that all these people were actually really interested in their lives. Uh, they were really invested because their lives were interesting. So what really sunk in was that um, none of our stories are trivial. Some of them might be small, but they're, they're none of them trivial. We might never leave home or, or get on Jeopardy or get an A on a paper or find a cure for anything, but we, we all live epics, epic lives. Of course, it turned out everybody around me already knew this um, and had known for a long time. This wasn't a surprise to Robin. Um, and they thought I knew it. They just assumed I knew. The nice thing about finally being an adult is, is that it lets you see your own part of the world um, for the gorgeous and promising and confusing and screwed up place it really is. And also, if you want to write about it, you can, do so, um, you can do so lovingly in a way that recognizes all those things that everybody else already knew. So for me, writing fiction turned out to be um, a big part of just growing up. And there are three things. There are three things um, that it's, it's taught me that have been really helpful. Three things I see now that I couldn't see back then. This is going to sound like guidelines for writers, um, and, and they are, but they're also good, I think, for, you know, teachers and students and furnace repairmen and anybody interested in kind of where they fit in the world. And actually, there are way more than three, but three will be enough for now. First is to embrace your context. Not that where I'm from or you're from is any better than you know, any, any place else. We've got no monopolies, I suspect, here. Every time I travel, I fall in love with wherever I am. And I think, what if I was from this place? You know, what if I was, what if I could be Norwegian? What if I was British? What if I came from uh, an inherently romantic place like Madrid? Um, what if I could live in the dark on a boat above the Arctic Circle? I always fall in love with these ideas, but the fact is I'm, I'm from here. I'm, I'm from Osakis, from west central Minnesota. I write in a Midwestern voice because it's the only one I really have access to. A frog can only croak, yeah? <laughs> so I'll, I'll croak as plainly as I can in order to be understood. Once you've decided to go ahead and, and be at peace with your context, I think it opens you up to the way that others might perceive you. Does anybody here know the term Yantelovin? One, one or two? Yeah. I had never heard of Yantelovin until 2012. That year, 
I had a book, it was Peace Like a River, translated into Norwegian. Robin and I went over to Oslo uh, for the publication. And while we were talking one night with the publisher, he was telling us these stories about his brother, who it turned out was a huge rock star in Europe, uh, with a band called Aha. You know the song Take On Me <laughs> from the 90s? Oh, that guy. And Hokan, the publisher, was talking about how difficult it was for his brother to have this huge success as a Norwegian. And he kept saying it was really hard for him because of the interloper. So we, we pressed him to explain what this was. Turns out Jantelöven is a, a term coined by the Danish author Axel Sandemos. In his novel, A Fugitive Crosses His Tracks, from 1936, the word means the laws of Jante. And in this story, Jante is in a little Scandinavian village that has set up its own kind of Ten Commandments for the purpose of keeping the kind of order that they want kept in Jante. You don't really know about this? No. I'm so glad I get to be the one to tell you. <laughs> okay, so here are the laws of Yante. Before I read them, I want you to think about how many Scandinavians settled in this part of the world and the extent to which the Scandinavian temperament has thrived here, okay? Number one, don't think you are anything special. <laughs> Number two, don't think you are as good as we are. Number three, don't think you are smarter than we are. You're getting the idea now, right? Because they're so similar, I'm, I'm tempted to summarize, but you know, I think I'm just gonna read them all. Just to kind of drive the point home, I think that's what Axel Sandemos was doing back in the 1930s. Number four, don't imagine yourself better than we are. Number five, don't think you know more than we do. Six, don't think you are more important than we are. Seven, don't think you are good at anything. Eight, don't you laugh at us. Nine, don't think anyone cares about you. Ten, don't think you can teach us anything. And there is a bonus. There's an unwritten but always recognized 11th rule of Yante, which is, don't think there aren't a few things we know about you. <laughs> so our discovery of Yanteloven in, in 2012 in Oslo it gave us our biggest laugh of that trip because we recognized it. Uh, here all along, I just thought that this was sort of a Minnesotan thing uh, along the lines of, one of the first sentences I can ever remember hearing, don't be a big wheel. <laughs> uh, but it came from the old country, we didn't invent this. And it's one of those things that once it had a name, we started to recognize it all over the place. We started seeing it both in real time and retroactively. And we started to weirdly kind of love it just for what it is. It's like when you name something, you have power over it, you know? Here's my favorite example of Yanteloven in action. When the movie Fargo came out, uh, Robin and I were living in Brainerd. You probably remember that Brainerd is where that movie actually takes place, even though it's called Fargo. The movie takes place in Brainerd, Minnesota. So locally, of course, there was, there was all this buzz. It's like, this, 
Coen Brothers made a movie about us. Let's go see it. <laughs> so we go to the theater, opening night. The place is packed out. And, uh, and the, the movie opens. There's a beautiful long scene, as I remember, of this car driving through this kind of blizzard. And everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and then uh, pulls up. Guy goes into the bar. It just looks like every bar out there, kind of. And uh, I, I could be wrong about this, but in my memory, the first line is when, um, what's his name? Um, the actor? Macy. William H. Macy. Macy goes in, goes up to these two guys who look pretty tough, sitting at a table under a light. And he says, uh, I am Jerry Lundegaard. <laughs> and two things happened in the theater when he said that. Most people just, just ripped out laughing. People, people understood it, people got it, people laughed their heads off throughout that movie. All people had to do in that picture was open their mouths and people were laughing. But the ones who didn't laugh got up and walked out. <laughs> we're not gonna sit here and be insulted by you. Yantelovin. And I think that was the clue that the Coens just got it exactly right. They just put their finger right on our Midwesternness. And I think it was even better because of the, would I even remember it if people hadn't walked out? Probably not, I don't know. I'm so glad they did because it was like proving its premise right there in real time. <laughs> it made it seem way more true and, and also way funnier. I think the reasons the, the Coens got it so right in that movie, besides the fact that they are geniuses, wasn't just that they knew those characters backward and forward, it was that they loved those characters. I think they loved them, and that's the other thing that you get by embracing your context. Um, if you write what you know, like everybody says, you might write something good. But if you write what you know and love, then you got a chance to write something great. That's my theory. Second, take your time. Don't take as much time as I take. <laughs> but take your time. There's a way of letting your work uh, distill uh, or ferment that, that can elevate it in the end into something better. Um, my two sons and I occasionally get together and brew a batch of beer. And the way you do that is you get hold of the grain, which has been, you know, we, we're not purists, we, we buy the kit, and the grain comes and it's, uh, it's a big sack of grain and it's been toasted until it smells like coffee and looks like the ground, looks like earth. And you pour the, the barley, the roasted barley, into a mesh bag, and then you boil the bag in a big stock pot on your stovetop and your house starts to smell beautiful like baking bread. And after it's boiled for a while, you throw in some hops and they have also a lovely smell. It's, it's very citrus-like. It's like grapefruit crossed with lemon. And you let the hops boil for 15 or 20 minutes at the end of the, of the boil. And so then you've got the smell of citrus and the smell of bread and it's all mixing together. And then you, you, you pour in a big slug of malt that smells like caramel apples telling you. It just makes your house smell beautiful. And then as it cools, 
you, you throw in the yeast. And the yeast doesn't have a particular smell, but almost right away, within a few hours, it starts to kind of bubble. Some of you have probably tried this. You know what I'm talking about. There starts to be a bubble, and, uh, and, and the yeast mixes with, uh, with the barley and the hops and the malt. And you can kind of hear them, the bubbling. We do our fermenting down in the basement. From upstairs, you can hear this conversation taking place between the barley and the hops and the malt. And the yeast is just the, the verb in the sentence, man. The yeast is just the troublemaker. It's in there stirring it all up and eating and growing and, and making problems, right? It's kind of a great process. And if you let it sit in your basement for a month, after the month, you can pour it off into bottles. You can decant this into bottles. And then after about another month, you can put some in the fridge, and when they're cold, open them up and drink them. And the great thing is that when you finally drink it, uh, you don't just get a tasty, refreshing drink. You get the scent of the grain. You get the smell of the earth. You get the hillside. Somehow you get the hillside. Uh, if you shut your eyes, you can, you can feel the sunshine that grew the hops somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And sure, it's imagination. You've got to use your imagination, but it's also weirdly like memory. It's like you've remembered a little slice of those Midwestern farm fields where the barley grew. And you've done all this just by paying a little attention, mixing some things together, letting it sit, letting it ferment for a long time, and you've ended up with a concentrated rendering of the land and the colors and the weather and the tastes and the history that it came from and somehow even a little bit of the future, whatever comes next. Seems like it's all in there. And that's as useful a description of writing, too, as, as I can imagine. You start just by walking through the fields or down your ordinary street. You talk to people whose lives are interesting. And you plant some tomatoes. You stretch your legs. You find out where the creeks are and take off your shoes and wade across them. You put out some nickels for the crows. Basically, you find all the things that you love. And you pour all this in a cheesecloth bag and put it in your basement and let it sit for a long time. Maybe it steeps for years and ferments and eventually you open it up and, and, uh, and see what you have. And if you're really lucky and everything has gone right and people have been really kind to you in the interim, then sometimes you end up with something that is, seems a lot like life except with like cleaner edges. And maybe it's a little more concentrated, a little scarier kind of lovely. John Gardner wrote that the best novels resemble a vivid, continuous dream. You can end up with something kind of like that. Uh, or a really sturdy memory, maybe a really sturdy memory. I don't think there are any shortcuts for that in writing or anything else. It's just fermentation and discipline and luck. Third and last, uh, don't be afraid. This is the shortest and best of the three. And I mean it really generally. There's so much fear available to us, more than I remember um, in, in my lifetime, although, granted, my lifetime is pretty short. There's a lot to be afraid about, depending on your point of view. The problem is that fear clogs your thinking. If you're doing anything creative especially, uh, I think fear can cripple you. Fear of, uh, of critics, 
um, a failure, fear of disappointing your family, fear about what people will think of you at work or at church or at home, fear of all kinds of extraneous junk that you know shouldn't matter but somehow does. I think fear has cost me more hours of time than any other enemy I ever had. Luckily, we can fight it. It's pretty easy. We have our curiosity that drives us to ask questions and understand people. We have beautiful streets and parks and lakes and hillsides where we can go and be renewed by the sun. We have our libraries where you can always find people who, like you, aren't interested in being afraid. If you're really lucky like I am, you live with someone who tells you, don't be afraid on a regular basis. Someone told me the Bible says, fear not, a total of 365 times. I don't know if that's true or not. It's a wonderful thing to think that for every day of the year, there's a fear not. I haven't counted. But I'm going to finish with a couple of lines from, uh, from one of my very favorite poems. This is from The Mad Farmer's Manifesto by Wendell Berry. The poem ends this way. Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. <laughs> Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Leifanger and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring if it really took Leifanger 10 years to write this book. I did. Um, and the reason is that I, I wrote it and, uh, and then I, I didn't like it and I threw it away and I wrote it again. Um, which, you know, I really hope never to have to do that again. Um, but no, I did write it twice and, and it did take me a, a very long time. I really struggled with, with the story until, until, um, until I sent him off the cliff. I mean, uh, he, he had to, to have a bad head injury before the story made sense then to me. Um, and the idea of, of a man sort of learning new surroundings, look, they're, they're like fish out of water stories, right? Uh, there's a story where a stranger comes to town, there's a story where a man goes on a trip, um, but they're all kind of fish out of water stories. And I love the idea that, that a man could be rediscovering what he already knew, except looking at it from a slightly different slant. Um, one of my dearest friends in the world went through a, um, a car accident and um, had a head injury and sort of rediscovered her life in a, in a slightly different way, just from a little different angle. And that, that really inspired me. So that happened at about the time that I was realizing that the, the manuscript I had was unsatisfactory. Uh, and so I, I asked her if, 
she would mind if I used her experience and, and filtered my book through it. And um, she said, go for it. There's got to be a silver lining. Uh, so I, I did that. And then, then the book made sense. Yeah. This audience member asks about the supernatural in Virgil Wander and what anger may have taken from Minnesotan or Scandinavian folklore. There's a very mild and um, subtle supernatural element. Um, I, tried to, I tried to use what I knew of sort of Norse mythology and, and not really the, not the kind you see on the screen in the Marvel movies, you know, uh, which is less interesting to me than the, the, the actual um, sagas uh, that were written down. You know, Norse mythology is filled with um, with uh, the idea that in the far north where it's dark for months at a time, um, that the rules are a little different up there, and that there are transformations that can take place, that there are uh, spirits that reside in big fish in the fjords, um, and that now and then the big fish will move up and down the shoreline looking for people they can beguile. Um, I was really intrigued by that. I, I love the um, uh, I love the persistent presence of ravens and crows in Norse mythology, and the way that they always seem to portend something, um, and the way that they're sometimes friend to people and sometimes not. Uh, I love that that Rune, who's the old Norwegian who hails from Tromsø, um, which has the long night, seems to have his finger on something that is a little bit otherwise. Um, that, that the kites connect him to something that um, is, is maybe larger than the mundane details of our lives. It's really attractive to me. Uh, I, I really wanted to, I wanted to use it. I tried not to be overbearing about it because other people are doing a great job of writing fantasy. And I wasn't very interested in trying to duplicate the efforts of someone like Neil Gaiman or um, other people who are doing this really well. I wanted it to be a real story uh, about genuine people who are flesh and blood. But I wanted there to be, and I always want there to be in my work, a sort of um, the, the availability of something that is about six inches off the ground. You know, I want my characters to be walking on the streets except once in a while when they look down and they're six inches off. That's really attractive to me. I, I, I don't know any other way to do it. You have to write what you, what makes you feel really alive. And I, I like realism, but, but I kind of feel like if you're using your imagination, then anything is fair game, right? This question is about the character Adam Lear and what he represents. Um, I really enjoyed writing him because the, the idea that I had with Adam was, um, was to write a man who is un unencumbered by conscience or, or empathy. Uh, because I think that when there's someone who doesn't have those humanizing traits, then they are not fully human. And if they're not fully human, then what, what might be the result if other people encounter them? It was really fun to realize as I was working through the book that whoever encountered Adam Lear had some sort of dreadful result. And it couldn't always be traced right back to him. In fact, most of the time it can't be, but it's after they have an encounter with Adam, something terrible happens. And, and has since he was seven years old, ever since he was a little boy. It's like he made a choice. 
It's like he made a choice when he was seven and just turned his back on all that. What can I be if I don't have this encumbrance of a conscience? Um, that was really, you know, kind of terrifying to work with, also really fun. And then what really kind of brought it full, you know, brought it home for me was that there's one person on whom he has no effect, uh, and that is Anne Fandine. Um, she maybe even benefits from her association with, with Adam Weir. I, I just love that there's one, there's one who's just immune. She's just immune. She's got too much energy. She's got too much sun just rising in her head. And, uh, and, and she, she bumps into that whirring flywheel and just, just heads off in another direction, but it's not harmful to her. I still don't know quite why that is, uh, but it seems incredibly true. Um, I, I think that there are people uh, among us who are, who are similar to Adam. We, I, sometimes I, I hear people talking about human nature on the radio or on podcasts. Jeez, I love podcasts. Uh, we, we get unlimited streaming now, and I can listen to podcasts whenever I want. It's, people will talk about human nature, and it's like, well, we don't believe in evil. Wow, I, I do. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think we encounter it. And, and uh, it's, I think it's just out there, and, and when you run into it, you're wise to recognize it. Uh, it almost always tells you what it is, almost always. And then you're smart to stay away from it and not to believe what it says. Uh, but Adam, you know, I mean, he has that attraction. He's, uh, he, he can be charming. Um, people think he's going to be generous. He isn't really. People think he's going to be. Uh, he's got the attraction of the the name and the money. Um, look out for people like Adam. Thanks for asking about him. Our next question comes from an audience member wondering why Leif Enger decided to include the theme of kite flying in his writing. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about kites, which are one of my favorite things. Um, man, when, when, uh, when I was maybe in seventh grade, uh, I started to get obsessed with kites and, and, um, and to build a lot of them. There was, a, there was a terrific book that was released in 1976 or 7 called The Complete Book of Kites and Kite Flying. It was by Will Yolen, uh, who was a, a publishing executive in New York. And he was the father of Jane Yolen, who's written all kinds of great children's books. I didn't know that at the time. Um, he was a kite flyer and he wrote this charming sort of history of kite flying that went back to the Chinese. Um, and, and then part of the book was, was his own adventures in kite flying. Uh, he, would, he would leave his office from whatever building he was, Simon and & Schuster maybe, and, and he'd go down to, to Central Park with a couple of kites folded up under his arm and he would just put them up and fly over his lunch hour. Kids would show up and, and he'd, he'd hand them the string and it was like he had this little tribe of followers. He would hand out cards to strangers that said worldwide friends through kite flying. <laughs> Um, I mean, he was really kind of an endearment. He looked like an elf. Um, and I was just, I just thought, you know, I was 13 or 14 and I thought, I've got to grow up to be this guy. How can I grow up to be this guy? And then the last portion of the book, Phil will remember this, was, was um, just a bunch of drawn plans for how to build your own kites at your kitchen table. So I just started doing that. And, and honestly, do you remember seventh grade? Flight is not a bad option. 
it just was a great way to, 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 uh, to get out and be by myself or with a well-chosen friend and, um, and, and fly some kites. And it really seemed like as soon as that kite gets in the air, a couple things happen. One is that you realize that it's just like you're, it's like you're, you got a fish on the line. By then, I, I was old enough to have caught a lot of sunnies and a few walleyes out on Lake Osakis with my dad. And you realize what a fish, what a fish is like when it gets on the line. You know, it's it, it's going to pull and tug. It wants to go its own way. Sometimes they'll fight and they'll get off. Um, sometimes they they make a run for it, and then you just got to let them go. You got to feed them some line, right? Tire them out a little bit so you can get them in, get them in. The kites are the same way. They are alive up there. They've got a mind of their own. Sometimes they'll just put their shoulder down and make a dive for land. And when that happens, just like with a fish, you just let out 30 or 40 feet as fast as you can. And every time, here's what happens. It gets down. It senses there's, it has a choice now. <laughs> and it turns and, and heads back up into the sky and stabilizes. It's, it's wonderful. I can still just lose entire afternoons just flying kites. Um, so for me, it was an escape. It was a way to feel like, look, uh, like I said, I, I, didn't, I didn't love my junior high years. I mean, they, they, everybody's junior high is fraught, I suspect, and mine was no different. Um, I felt like I was in touch with something bigger when I flew a kite. And so that's never really gone away from me. I still feel that way when I fly. Now we live in Duluth, so I go down to Park Point and I put up a kite over, over the lake. <coughs> it's fantastic. Um, so Rune, look, there's got to be a character in your book that just is... Um, Rune's always six inches off the ground, I think. You know? He's, he just lives six inches off the ground. And, uh, and I put him in so there'd be somebody like that but when I really needed it, I have it. Um, you, you write books for yourself. You write books primarily to um, cheer yourself up and, and um, make yourself laugh. And, um, and that's what Rune is there for. That's what the kites are there for. I, I realized when I started the book and Rune came into it that I'd been waiting since I was 13 to write about kites. Um, which is, you know, a fun thing to realize. It's like, oh yeah, there's a little gas in the tank down here. Um, and, and I think the kites improve the story. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Leif Enger is working on next. I'm, I'm, writing, a, I'm writing another Lake Superior book right now. Um, and, and I find, you know, this is funny. We, Robin and I just moved to Lake Superior in, in August. We've been there less than a year, but we, we had wanted to live near Lake Superior for a long time because in the summers we like to go over and go sailing out of Bayfield, Wisconsin. Uh, lovely place, but so to get to Bayfield, we, we drive, of course, through Duluth, and we would always drive through and say, man, can you imagine? Can you imagine being near this sort of source of magic? It's like having God in your backyard. And the other night, after, uh, after the first icebreakers came through, and the first ship, did you see this? The first ship left the harbor, the other one? We heard it go, uh, because our house is up the hill. It's not next to the lake, but it's six or seven blocks up the hill from the lake. And, uh, and at night, we heard these foghorns. We heard the foghorn coming from the ship, and we heard the answer um, as, it, as it passed under the bridge. And we can hear that from our house, and, 
And so the reason this gets to your question about writing something else is I feel like, uh, I feel like I've hit on something. Um, at least for me, I, I feel like there's a, a source there of some mojo that might, might last me for several books. It feels like, uh, like the source of something. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping this one doesn't take so long. Thanks so much, everybody, for coming out. I, I sure enjoyed it. That wraps up our Carver County Library Chanhassen event with Leifanger. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Linda Lagarde Grover at Anoka County Library, Northtown. Award-winning novelist and poet, Linda Lagarde Grover is a poignant chronicler of the modern Native American experience. Her new Anishinaabe novel, In the Night of Memory, is a follow-up to her perennially popular debut, The Road Back to Sweetgrass. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>